0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com
0: hello and welcome to the karma you podcast this is your host chloe brotheridge i'm a coach a hypnotherapist, and I'm the author of The Anxiety Solution and Brave New Girl. And this podcast is all about helping you to become your calmest, happiest, and most confident self. Welcome, welcome. This week, I am speaking to Sarah Wilson, who is an activist and an author. You might know her from her work. Several years ago, she wrote the book, I Quit Sugar, and then she went on to write How We Make the Beast Beautiful which was a book about anxiety, really brilliant. And she has a new book out called This One Wild and Precious Life. I think Sarah is amazing. I was really, really excited to speak to her. She's a massive role model for me, I have to say. I think she's incredible. She sold her company, the I Quit Sugar Company, and gave 80% of the profits to charity. And she continues to give the vast majority of her money to charity. She's a big environmental activist, And an incredible writer and we get into talking about what Sarah describes as the itch and she explains what this is and trust me you probably have the itch you may not have known you had the itch but you probably have it and you're going to want to know what that is we talk about the thing that finally turned Sarah's anxiety around having experienced severe anxiety for her her whole life she has recently found something that has really helped her to turn things around And we talk about how Sarah processes her feelings of grief, anxiety and anger. A lot of the book that she's just written is about big topics. It's about 2020. It's about um, the climate. It's about all our problems that we have as a result of living in this modern life that we live. And really shining a light on those things brought up a lot of feelings for her. And so I wanted to know how she processes her own feelings. And then finally, Sarah shares what she calls soul nerding, which is something that I think we all need more of in our lives and she's going to share how we can uh, access that as well. So as always I would love to invite you over to my website www.karma-u.com And I've got loads of freebies on there for you. I have a confidence affirmation MP3. I've got an anxiety toolkit, loads of podcasts and other resources for you to access over there on the website. I'm also going to be running live my anxiety course, Your Calmer Self, which is a 12-week course that gives you the tools to manage your own anxiety. And that is going to be opening for enrolment on the 1st of February. So keep an eye out for that. And if you get emails from me, you'll see that around the 1st of February. So let's get into the interview with Sarah Wilson. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm pretty good actually.
1: Um, Yeah, really privileged to be starting 2021 quite busy. Um, I think it's actually a great thing to have work at the moment you know. um, I think work is a wonderful way to remain engaged in a really good way while there's so much chaos going on and so much to process. So I feel very, very lucky from that point of view. But thank you for asking.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's good to hear. Um, I'm a big fan of your writing and I've been so enjoying your book, your new book, This One Wild and Precious Life. And I really needed this book. I didn't realize how much I did but I really needed it it's really addressing so many of the things that I'm thinking about and conversations that I'm having with people um can you sort of share a bit about what the book's about and also a bit about the journey that you took to writing it because it wasn't that straightforward it sounds like
1: yeah um so it's almost like a part two to the book that came out in the uk i think two years ago called first we make the beast beautiful which was an inward journey that i went on to kind of understand anxiety and my bipolar and my obsessive compulsive disorder through a a lens that was more useful and more productive and more joyful so a philosophical and spiritual lens And um, that was great. I had great conversations. It was a great healing tool. And um, I've always been involved in the climate movement. And so as I started to get lots of strength back and lots of joy in my life because I was connecting in a new way um, with everyone around me. Because I'd not talked about this subject so openly before, um, I noticed that the anxiety and the angst and the dis ease was manifesting in the outward world, the outside world, as opposed to an inward journey. I knew I needed to go on an outward journey, and I thought the times were really suggesting that that was a journey that all of humanity needed to go on. We'd been on this individualistic downward slide neoliberalism had come to its zenith and and everything we were doing was individualistic and in fact as you'd know in know chloe in the book i actually talk about spiritualism and the self-help culture and how it can be really problematic because it's too insular it's too individualistic it's too me 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 focused um and so Yeah, I figured that I needed to go outward and investigate this collective anxiety that was happening, to talk about why we'd arrived where we were at, and then to come up with a way, a path forward through it, through this complexity, and what really is an overwhelm. An overwhelm that was making people descend into inaction, which is exactly what we do not need as the planet burns and um we destroy it and we are threatened with pandemics and political fragmentation and so on we need to be active alive to it we need the better discussion so i think that probably answers your question
0: (laughs) yeah 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 I i wanted to ask you about something you you talk about in the beginning of the book i'm going to read a little bit you talk about something you call the itch the planet is burning refugees cry out for our help The gap between the haves and the have-nots has become a cruel chasm. And we, yeah, well, we scroll and binge watch and buy stuff, which makes the itch worse. Can Mm -hmm. can you sort of describe a bit more about what what this itch is? I think so many people uh, will hear that and think, actually, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I couldn't come up with a word that really summed up what we were feeling because it isn't quite anxiety. Anxiety is one of the ramifications of this other feeling it's kind of a cringe it's an it's a it's a fear mixed with anger because we want to blame someone for the scenario we're in right and then then it's with a guilt because we know we're complicit like it's not like it's a war where we can point our finger outwards and go that's caused the problem you know in this case we cause the problem and we know it and then, and then it's, um, you know, it's and then it's despair and grief as well because we are grieving, like, the loss of biodiversity. Um, we are grieving the loss of animals that were in our picture books as children and are now on the extinct list. And we're also grieving the plans we had for our future. So especially in most places around the world, young people in particular, um... You know, their plans for finishing maybe school or university are on hold. Uh, Their plans to maybe go off and do an internship or to travel, to do a gap year and travel are on hold, potentially never to be realised again. We don't know. And so there's grief. So it's all of these feelings and, of course, the worst part of it is the fact that we know we're complicit and we're doing nothing. And so I describe it as this itch, this really awkward sense that we're not living life right we're not doing life right and um we need to change and we are so overwhelmed we don't know where to start we've we go numb we go numb yeah
0: Mm, yeah I relate to that feeling so much almost like I don't know whether you would call it like a cognitive dissonance of kind of putting something in the recycling bin and then thinking I shouldn't have bought that thing in the first place but then being sort of faced with pressures to live at this fast pace and feeling like we need to have convenience and and then thinking does it matter what I do and then exactly
1: but yeah it does
0: matter yeah and I'm caught up in this is there another
1: framework to work to is the only solution communism and socialism where do I start where's fake news begin where does it end it's there is just so much to digest and um And the upshot is we often do go into numbness. We go back to scrolling. We go back to watching television. We go back to um, avoiding uh, confrontation and discomfort. And, of course, I talk about this in the book as well. Um, Added to all of this is a culture where we have been, that's been geared towards cocooning ourselves from discomfort. We run from it rather than seeing that discomfort is a sign, a signal, a very useful signal to say, you need to change. You know? All right, everyone, let's regroup, let's bring the whiteboard out and come up with a different way of going about things. Instead, we just shut down and we we watch more TV. And, um, you know, it's a really interesting um, phenomenon. Like. We talk about technology um, and, you know, it's this big problem. Well, I actually say that technology only ever enables, right? It enables, um, and so the more interesting question is, well, what does it enable? It enables our, at the moment, our kind of worst tendencies as humans. It enables distraction and it enables us to shut down a cocoon and avoid discomfort. And um, I think it's something like, 80 to 90% of all technology that's been produced in the last 30 years has been geared towards eliminating discomfort. So, you know, eliminating uncertainty as to when our pizza's going to arrive on, you know, via some delivery app, because we can follow it. Um, you know, the discomfort of not getting something like we don't Gratification is rarely delayed, so we don't even get to test that resilience muscle. Um, So yeah, it's, it, and a big part of what I try to show in the book is the reasons why we are where we're at. Because once we understand, it actually lifts that burden, the really itchy part of it, which is that we are to blame and we alone must fix it. So once we understand where it's come from, that it's a systemic issue, then we can start to have a really useful, compassionate, fun, enlightening, joyful discussion about what we're going to do about it. And, we, and we're more likely to, um, to engage in action because we don't get too overwhelmed.
0: I'm really, I'm really curious to know how you dealt with the feelings of kind of really focusing on this issue a lot and writing about it because the amount of research that you did and some of the things that you wrote about cli- the climate change... I almost, I mean, I think you even say in the book, you know, I feel like I don't even want to write this down because it's so frightening. Um, how did you kind of deal with all that? Because the temptation, I think, for lots of us, and, and the problem is that we just don't want to look at it and we just put it in a box and try not to think about it and watch Netflix instead.
1: Yeah. Um, well, to a certain extent, once you actually really come face to face with the climate information, the science, you can't unsee it. And it becomes more painful to try to ignore it than to face it and go right. What to do about it? It's more painful to bury my head in the sand than it is to roll my sleeves up and at least give give the situation my best shot. And look, I'm going to be really honest with you. This is a discussion I had with all of the climate scientists that I interviewed for the book, and I think I I interviewed around about a dozen uh, climate ci- scientists, many of whom work on the IPCC report, which is the big report that we work to at the moment that says that we need to reduce temperature increase uh, to limit it to 1.5 degrees, um, no more than 1.5 degrees by 2050. And that's that's the Paris Agreement, essentially. So um, pretty much all of them, in fact, I'd say all of them I spoke to, essentially declared that they know they're going to die of climate change not old age but climate change and um, I accept that reality myself Um, you know and it it breaks my heart every time even I'm getting welled up now talking about it not so much for myself because I've had time to process it Um, I'm really upset I get upset because I fear for humanity's ability to deal with this once they ha- once everybody has their penny drop moment. I'm seeing what's happening politically around the world, I'm seeing what's happening with COVID and the, the as you say the cognitive dissonance that goes on as we try to avoid the truth. And it's the you know was it the, the the conspiracy theories in and around COVID not existing or we don't need to wear masks and and um, the conspiracy theories around the, the electoral um, rigging in the US and so on. We're, we're doing all the ridiculous things to avoid facing the really scary truth of where we're at um, in the world and the same as with the climate crisis. We will deny that anything's going on, that our takeaway coffee cup, that we use, we use maybe one or two a day, and then we just throw in the bin, we deny that we actually know what's going on there. That plastic won't break down for at least 400 years. That plastic is going into the ocean and it's then been ingested by fish. And we're all ingesting a credit-card sized chunk of plastic every year, including children. It is going into our systems and it's now being found in the umbilical cords of newborn children um, or the placenta. Um, So we know this and we go to great lengths to avoid the pain of of that reality. And so for me, yes, I've had to face that reality. I've had to face the grief, I feel. Um, And I've made very big decisions um, going from that. But one thing I'll say, Chloe, is that also at the same time, my life has taken a pivot turn to the more meaningful from all of this. My life is richer than it has ever been in my 47 years on this planet. I don't, I mean, I've been riddled with anxiety and, and so on all my life, as long as I remember Um and I would say that the realisation, the work that I've had to do to deal with where we're at in the world today and, and coupled with that very necessarily, the action that, that, that I've forced myself into has seen me actually get rid of the bulk of my anxiety. I wake up every day with a vigour, a balance, a certainty about myself uh, that I've never had before. So that's what I try to convey in the book. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, how do I process all of this, and this, this reality? Um, I faced it head on. I, I accepted it. I understood it. I made myself understand it. I found compassion for myself and those people around me because a big part of the issue is we get so angry. Why isn't my? Why should I go to all this effort of recycling if my neighbour's not? You know, how come nobody's going to these protests? They whinge about climate change, but they're not going to do anything about it. Once I understood all of it. I found compassion and then I realised I need to take all of that my anger and the negative uh, emotions and drive it towards action. And as I started to do that, I started to feel empowered and then my life took on purpose. And as Viktor Frankl said, and I think Nietzsche said it, you know, I'm going to paraphrase them together, um, you know, when we have, you know, when man has a, when humans have a why, we can endure any kind of how we can put up with a whole heap of stuff so long as we have purpose that is that is a, an absolute truth so yeah that i've turned it into a I've turned it into a positive
0: yeah that's amazing i think that's such good advice for anyone to, to whatever might be going on in their life or in the world to, to face up to things and and take action because um, yeah one thing that i've really taken away from your work and a lot of things you post on instagram is that you know so if we're kind of navel gazing constantly and looking inwards, we're just gonna get we're gonna find more and more stuff to, to to feel unhappy with. If we can take action out in the world, that can, you know, give us, as you said, that meaning and purpose that actually is is something that's really healing for us inside as well. Um mm-hmm. I did I wanted to ask you about the conspiracy stuff, because I, I remember you wrote something in The Guardian, I don't know if it was a few months ago, about this. And I have found that a, a big chunk of people that I'm friends with on Facebook not my not my really close friends but people I'm friends with on Facebook that I might have met on a yoga retreat or um mm-hmm. at some kind of ceremony they've gone down a very different path than yeah. they had in the past um believing that the world is controlled by satanist blood drinking democrats <laughs> and uh yeah COVID doesn't exist and masks are just the government trying to control us I found this really quite hard to deal with. Um, It's kind of shaken my sense of who I thought my kind of people were. Um, And I've noticed so many arguments online about this, so much division. Um, I wonder, like, how do you have you noticed that in your own life as well? And how do you cope with that? And how do you how do you sort of approach it?
1: Absolutely. Um, I live in. Bondi, Sydney, Australia. It is the epicenter of the wellness sort of realm and green smoothie and yoga crew. And when they're not here, they're in Bali or <laughs> or LA. But um, obviously, I'm not at the moment um, so much. But um, yeah, I mean, this is the realm I've been in by my work with the I Sugar business that I had, and um, I've noticed it myself. And it's been really interesting. It's very much dividing the community. Um, And those who are... Well, look, I don't want to actually wade into it too much. I think anyone listening is probably a little aware of it. Um, But I, again, I, I wrote the piece for The Guardian because I wanted to understand it better. I often go ahead and write books or articles or, you know, volunteer to go on some news panel show. If it's about something where I know I need to go and investigate it anyway, it gives me a sort of a... A forum to have to go and do it. So, with this one, yeah, I went and sort of researched some of the psychology, and it's actually not that new. That's the really interesting thing about it. Um, throughout history, during times of disruption and fear and uncertainty, conspiracy theories come forth, and we can understand why. Um, and then, um, but in particular, um, there's been a sort of connection between the wellness and spiritual community and and conspiracy theorising. And I was trying to understand why, and I think it's because, and obviously I referred to a number of experts for the column that I wrote for The Guardian. Um, it's a lot of people in the wellness realm um, very legitimately uh, question various Sciences. So the food and pharmaceutical industries are rife with corruption. Um, you know, that's that's kind of, we know this, the sugar industry has all kinds of formulas for getting us to eat their foods and for paying governments to avoid certain policies being put into place. And, you know, much like the tobacco industry, and, and now we've got the pharmaceutical industry. So there's big pharma and then there's big food, right? And they're, they're massive entities. And I think the wellness community have done great work in questioning it and holding it to account because the government isn't. So there's this sort of drive that comes from a really great place and then when something really uncertain comes about like a global pandemic it can throw everybody all of us right and we all want to clutch certainty in different ways and we do it in in kind of We as humans, we're not great with kind of dealing with disasters. Actually, we are when we're presented with them face to face, right? We rise to the occasion incredibly well. And I think there's countless examples during World War II of that happening, particularly in Britain, uh, during the the London Blitz. I mean, um, Britain rose to its best self. It was its healthiest. um, It was its most charitable and it was its happiest um suicide levels dropped to virtually zero during the london blitz now during a time like this where it's uncertain we don't know who the enemy is we don't know what's going on and we don't know who to trust so during a war you generally have a wartime leader that can very clearly point to the enemy winston churchill did that particularly well Um, whereas with this we don't know who to trust and so people start their imaginations go and the wellness industry have always felt they needed to question things and they continued that vigilante approach and then you couple it with really a bunch of algorithms, you know. And so um, you you get onto YouTube and you go down a rabbit hole. And for anyone interested in this subject, um, a really good podcast that will explain it better than we can probably discuss it here in a short time, it's a quite an extensive podcast. It's done by the New York Times and it's called Rabbit Hole. And it's a really good, it's a little bit old now, but it does explain how all of this works. Um, and... I I developed a whole heap of compassion. Now, um, you you start looking at some of these YouTube videos and you are steered, handheld, almost forced down a funnel into a certain way of thinking. And if you're scared already and you're wanting to look for certainty, then then these YouTube and um, Facebook algorithms will take you there. They'll take you to what feels like a safe place, a community where there's answers and at least outrage, you know, collective outrage so yeah i 'm um, certainly seen around me, and i 've had to find a way to understand it and have compassion for it because it has been very unsettling. How can these people who feel very reasonably and kindly and compassionately about this thing have this view of things over here, but they're feeling the same way about you and I, you know and I have a phrase in in my book um, and sorry, it, it's a quote from Rumi. It's part of a poem and it's, you probably know it. It's out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing. there is the field. I'll meet you there. And I think it's the most beautiful call to arms because essentially, I mean, it really does remind us that, you know, there is somewhere where we can meet, where we can actually come to a good place of understanding that's not about being right or wrong. And we're going to have to do it on this topic because so much has interfered with our cognitive processes to land us in such fragmentation.
0: Mm, I'm definitely going to listen to that podcast. Do do you listen to the Conspirituality podcast? Have you heard of that one?
1: I know it and I read quite a lot of their work when I was researching that Guardian piece, but no, I haven't listened to it. you know what? It's, it's sometimes I actually have to be self-protective because I want to understand it to a certain extent, but I don't want to. And it's a bit how I read the news and absorb the news. I need to understand it. It's responsible. And if you know, you probably remember this phrase again from my book: "If you're spiritual, you must be political. It's non-negotiable." You know, Jesus and Gandhi was were political. You know, um, and so yes, as part of my spiritual practice, I stay abreast of news and various things, various podcasts. But I also have to be. We also have to create our own boundaries um, that to, to prevent us from maybe going down a rabbit hole, but also from from getting um, bereft. Mm. You know, we 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 should protect ourselves from too much information. We should know what's going on, but we shouldn't punish ourselves with it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think it is about finding that balance. We don't want to completely disconnect from what's happening in the world, but equally, we don't no. want to be doom scrolling. I think doom scrolling was the year of the word uh, word of the year. Sorry, last year. Um, we don't want to yeah. be doing that. Definitely not. No. no.
1: Um,
0: and, everyone, and- and the thing that,
1: well, sorry, I was just going to say. Go ahead. I think that I think that's really important as well. Is that it's a little bit like what I used to say when I was talking about I Quit Sugar. Um, a lot of people were going, "Wow, well, why isn't the government doing, you know, once they started to realise what was happening about food, being, uh, sugar being put in food to keep their children addicted, et cetera, they were like, well, why isn't someone doing about this? And, and once you understand the government probably won't. Um, then what you need to do is then uh, take control of things yourself. And so that's what we need to do as well with um, too much information, like this deluge and this doom scrolling. No one's going to come and save us from it. The the horse has bolted. What we need to do is actually create our own boundaries, our own. And I I refer to these things as sort of moral and ethical guardrails, and we used to have them institutionalised by the church or governments or HR departments that would ensure we didn't work 24-7. So that We used to have these wonderful institutions. I called them the umpires on the field that would, you know, wave a flag or blow a whistle when individualism went too far. We don't have those anymore. Capitalism, neoliberalism has wiped them off the field. Uh, we have no respect. Even science, right, has been disregarded um, and, you know, intellectuals and academia, you know, we're anti-academia. And so we are now left to have to work those boundaries out ourselves. And so, yeah, we certainly do have to address our own doom scrolling. No one's going to come and save us from that. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I I wanted to ask you also about loneliness. I know you, you sort of touched on this in the book and I remember you doing a it was an Instagram live talking about it I think it was in the first lockdown kind of your own experience of that um, and as I was reading your book the other day I was thinking oh I'm noticing like I'm actually feeling some loneliness as well and, and sometimes we don't maybe notice that emotion we might feel bad or we might feel sad but not really know that it's that um, have you yeah can you can you share a bit about have you experienced that in the last year and how do you how do you deal with that
1: yeah um it's again an exploration i had to sort of really get to the nub of what our loneliness is about because we we have more interactions with other humans than ever before even during COVID, even during various lockdowns right um you know we've just we've got that deluge of interactions but what we are often lacking is meaningful engagement meaningful relationships meaningful um engage uh, interactions so um what i think is the most painful kind of loneliness whether you are in a relationship whether you've got a big family around you or whether you live in your own as as i do so i did i did only a 6 week fairly intensive lockdown right at the beginning because australia was really quick to jump on it and it prevented us actually from i mean we i think we've got I think we've got maybe a dozen cases in Australia of COVID at the moment. Um, we've even got down to zero cases. And then the only cases we're getting at the moment is from overseas travellers that are coming back into the country. And then it sort of leaks out of the, the hotels where they're in quarantine. But um, so we did it quite early. And it was really it was hard because we in a in a crisis, we are programmed to go and hunt out or gather around other humans. That's what we do to survive. And so our primitive urge has been blocked, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, now, for people who've got kids and they're doing homeschooling, it's a completely different story. But again, I think there's a similar kind of loneliness that's being felt. And the loneliness is really, um, it's a it's a loneliness from meaningful engagement, but it's not just from others. It's also f- loneliness from a meaningful engagement with ourselves. There is so much... E- Distraction going on in the world that we fail often to have a conversation with ourselves, we fail to have moral discussion with ourselves, discerning moral discussion. And so, even the practices that we used to have, you know, during throughout history, have been wiped once more by neoliberal thinking, and uh, it's kind of considered you know, woo-woo to, to do that. And then of course we've also we're also lacking meaningful a meaningful relationship or connection or engagement with the world, with nature and with meaning. So um that's something that I address in the book, that we have to reconnect. We need to find practices to reconnect in a meaningful way to others to ourselves and to the world and it's really on the latter one that I really focus towards the end of the book because I feel that the self to saving the planet and really the self to saving humanity because the planet will survive it will just kind of adjust and humans will be wiped out and it will keep moving on right um it'll find new species to keep it to keep the 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 balance, you know, going. Um, but the, the, I think the secret to giving our having our best shot at it is to reconnect meaningfully with the world around us. We, our relationship with um, the patterns of nature, have been severed, and so, and as a result, we've we've lost touch with how much it means to us, how much the planet means to us, how much biodiversity and equilibrium matters to us. And um, I feel that, and I have this phrase on the back of the book, uh, it's the blurb that's being pulled out and it's along the lines of, um, humans will save what we love if we love it hard enough. Um, and so our challenge is to remind ourselves of how much we love nature. We need to get into it. We need to, to be in it. We need to be with it. And then we'll want to save it. We'll just do everything we can to save it. And so that's my stealth motivation of the book is to get people meaningfully connected with nature, with life, with life.
0: Mm, yeah. And and in, in sort of various stories throughout the book, you share about walks that you've done. And I found myself really craving be able to kind of walk in nature and you can't it's not really you can't really do that so much in Bali it's there's rain there's torrential rain then it's 30 degrees too hot for an English person to walk in the day and then um there aren't kind of pavements so it's not like in a city like in London you walk around the streets of London or something or in a park in London and I was really craving that and um I'm sure people reading that were. is that what you kind of wanted people to get a sense of kind of strap on your your hiking boots and get out there
1: Yes, yeah, so look, the, the hiking motif um, kind of carries what's a pretty heavy, gnarly storyline, you know, so there's my personal story, and I actually share some fairly intimate grief that I go through in the three-year period of writing the book, and then there's the, the freaking heavy shit of the world's coming to an end, you know, and um there's critical fragmentation we're not getting anything right you know what are we going to do so i i tell the story through hikes um and it's where i read a lot of my dense reads you know and i you know i'll read Nietzsche um, out in the bush and um now as it happens quite perfectly Walking in nature then turns out to be my fix, myself, my through line, my my, my way forward. And I happen upon that quite accidentally. It's almost like it was right in front of me. And I go, oh, God, there we go. I've got the solution. I've been doing it all along. Um, and then there's also a legacy to walking in nature as a way to solve complex problems. So some of the greatest philosophers and political thinkers, um, poets and scientists have hiked to get clear. So Nietzsche... He, he wrote everything um, walking out in nature. Hegel, I think it was, had a pen inserted into his walking stick and sort of paper, a little sort of insert that he could put paper in and he'd stop and write as he went. Virginia Woolf, Charles Darwin, um, Winston Churchill, uh, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, they all walk to come up with their incredible inventions and contributions. So I sort of feel that we, can, we need to walk out our reconnection with life. We need to walk out uh, our path forward to saving the planet. Um, so it, it, I was so happy when I realised that I was already doing the fix that I'd been looking for, you know. There's a point the third of the way through the book, you might recall, where I'm like, holy shit, I don't have an answer i've promised my publishers in the us uk and australia that i've got a path forward through all of this right i thought i had it and then i got into it and realized oh my goodness what am i going to do um and i went for a hike to try to work out what i was going to do i was so overwhelmed i had a coffee with my meditation teacher and he gave me some great advice he said sarah you need to show us how to do this because and you need to make it it look charming, more charming than the status quo, more charming than the way we're doing things. Because so, I know you enjoy it. You you don't do it because it's like self-flagellation. Because I live as a minimalist. I lived out of one bag for 10 years. I ride a bike everywhere. I do zero food waste, all of that sh- stuff. And it sounds very pious, but I do it because I love it. And he said, show us how to do it. Show us the joy. So I went for a hike to work it out and I was running really hard in the bush. I just threw myself at bushland and just sort of ran and scrambled over rocks and so on. And, um, and I stopped at one point and I looked at this murmuration of birds and I saw how just perfectly formed it was with no effort. And I realised the solution was nature. Every answer we ever need is emulated in the natural world. We can turn to nature. We can just be in it. So, yeah, that's that's how the hiking thing came about. Mm,
0: yeah, I love that. I love
1: that. Um, but yes, like the- I wanted to people to get out there. And yeah. and as a founder of Cosmo, I knew that I needed to make this kind of sexy. I needed to make it sort of. I needed a layer of I don't know color, you know, a hot pink with Sequence and um, hiking had become really popular in the last couple of years. It's it's become the thing to do. Um, Getty Images, the number one image that was used on Getty Images when I was editor of Cosmic was a shot, and you'll probably recognise it, or at least something similar, of a girl wearing white bra and undies set, sort of lying on a bed of white sheets with dappled lighting, and you'd use that shot to sort of, you know, illustrate how to get the corner office and, you know, premenstrual pain, right? And the most popular Getty image 10 years later, so this was in 2017, um, was a picture of a girl wearing Wearing a beanie and a backpack and a puffer vest out hiking above Lake Louise in, in Banff um, and telling, right? You know, a totally different yeah. idea of what femininity is. So, um, or at least what appeals to women. So, yeah, it, hiking became a way of making it all a little bit sexy and for people who are stuck in lockdown, it, it, you know, they can maybe live vicariously through my hikes around the world.
0: Mm -hmm. it's quite a good sign if that image is what we're aspiring to i think that's a good a good sign of things to to come hopefully yeah 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 um i wanted to ask are there other things that you do to stay mentally healthy Mm.
1: yeah there's quite a few that i've had to put in place i call them sort of certainty anchors that um keep me balanced um and modulated so that my anxiety can be used as a superpower not as something that holds me back so i exercise every day i i don't take it seriously as in i have apps or fitbits or you know um a set agenda I wake up and I just move and so some days and it depends on the weather and it depends on how well I've slept (laughs) so some days it's gentle yoga in my study um, for half an hour sometimes it's a sand run or an ocean swim Um, sometimes it's a pilates class so yeah I move every day exercise really is a bit of a silver bullet for me it it i can't i actually can't function without it mentally Mm. um the second thing is meditation so after exercise i meditate and again if i get too rigid with it it doesn't it, it turns into a chore i don't i do i really do try to find things i try to find the the juicy enjoyable aspect of things so sometimes i meditate for five minutes i try to make it 20 minutes um and sometimes i just Vigilance work, so I go right. It's twenty minutes. I set a timer and I'll stick to it. Um, But I do meditate at least once a day, sometimes twice a day. Um, I I I eat an abundance of good food rather than try to restrict bad, so-called bad food. So I um, I eat a lot of vegetables um, and a lot of good fat and I just don't hold back if it's good fat and and got lots of nutrients I eat as much as I need to and I'll eat until I'm super full um I tend to eat two or three times a day I find that works well for me um I need to feel nourished and and so on and then I also need to get my body to reset that's what works for me um I also have been on a bit of a um, mission to, especially since COVID's been happening and the world has shifted so much, I've decided to, I have to get very serious about what I'm going to do with the remaining years on this planet. And um, I don't have time for redundancies or things that hold me back. And so I've had to get fairly vigilant. You know, it's only, you know, it's early 2021, but I'm having to remove aspects to my life business partners that are just don't just don't serve a greater purpose um, and I'm having to get quite full-on about it you know quite focused on that so that's made a big difference to my life
0: mm.
1: um, it's it's I've had to do that throughout my life so I as you know I got rid of the i quit sugar business i shut it down and gave all of the money to charity and i continue to give about seventy 78 percent of my money my income to charity and that was a big decision that i made because it enabled me to move forward with more meaningful stuff while ever i was managing the, the business and the financials and all of that i was going to be held back so i I make these decisions quite regularly. I have an appointment with myself, you know, that sort of meaningful relationship, that discerning discussion with myself to go, right, get real, Sarah. What matters? Okay, now what's getting in the way of you doing what matters? So, yeah, there's some of the practices, I suppose. They sound a bit but
0: That's amazing. That's really inspiring, actually, the idea of thinking about what really matters in your life, getting rid of the things that, you know, aren't meaningful the relationships
1: uh, the business well, aspects i'll tell you one other thing that helps that's a little, maybe a little bit more tangible for people listening is and i have a chapter on it in the book called soul nerding so i soul nerd and soul nerding is basically reading up and studying the mindsets the work the the practices the the life hacks of people who have lived meaningful lives so i'm talking philosophers writers whatever whoever it might be and so throughout the book i actually share a lot of those nerds those soul nerds whose work i i study and that in itself the process of applying myself to their experience gets me into that nice discerning mindful relationship with myself but um it because it's a practice you know um you have to not be distracted and then the second thing is it reminds me that i'm not alone it is actually really appropriate and normal to be having the thoughts I've been having. And it's just such a comfort to know that these people, these people that have gone on to do these grand, beautiful things, went through the hard slog of setting up these, you know, once again, these uh, moral guardrails, having various torturous at times practices to keep them on the straight and narrow But even just reading about their pain, just knowing that other people go through pain and they have to work their ways through it and then seeing great things generally come out of that work. Mm. So that's what I call soul nerding. And soul nerding, oh, it's a joyous thing, you know. And again, it's one of those practices that we've lost touch with. We don't do long reads. Most people can't even read a proper philosophical book anymore. You know, our brains have been rewired. So it's a practice
0: Mm. like meditation. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything that you've been anything specifically you've been reading recently that you could share about? Yeah, Virginia Woolf.
1: I reread um, *A Room of One's Own*. Oh my god, it's so radical and cool. And she's just like she gets quite vigilant with what matters to her, and she speaks out. And this is a time for speaking out. Um, let me see. Um, I've just interviewed. Sia, the singer, um, who's written over 100 hits for Beyonce and she wrote Diamonds for Rihanna and Chandelier and so on. She's an Australian and I've been following her work for a very long time, but I've got a podcast and I just interviewed her this morning actually, so I've been song nerding on her work and her thinking, and her philosophies and her the, the life that she's led. And I've been in tears and I've gone into... A rabbit hole. I see a rabbit hole. Um, so yeah, that's her work. Um, the Stoics. I've been reading a bit of Stoic. The Stoics, um, Seneca and so on. I find great comfort there. Um, other Rutger Bregman is another person I interviewed for my podcast. He wrote Humankind. He writes about. He breaks down a lot of the science that says we're selfish beings and that we're um, we're sort of the Lord of the Flies. Types where mm. we will capitalise each other to get ahead. And he breaks down a lot of the thinking there. Um And Nietzsche, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, I've just reread as well. It's not easy going, but there's some beautiful moments in it.
0: Okay, yeah. awesome. Definitely adding some things to my reading list. I'm going <laughs> to take myself out into, into a rice paddy and read some Nietzsche. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Just one, I suppose one final question. I wanted to come back. I think we, we sort of touched on this, the kind of the climate change issue. Um, I think reading your book has definitely. I mean, I'm I'm involved in that world to some extent in Extinction Rebellion, but I think reading your book has kind of lit more of a fire under my butt. Um, are there things that you when you when you talk about kind of people being active in this area? What are some of the things that you would recommend if someone's thinking, actually, you know, I've read this book and actually it has reminded me how important this is. I'm ready to face it head on rather than burying, burying it. What, what advice would you have for people?
1: Uh, I'll, ref- I'll refer to phrases in my book. Um, there's one that um, I think resonates with people and I applied it to myself as well when I was writing the book, Start Where You Are. I think a lot of people feel that they've got to somehow start up some new climate group and, you know, um, you know do something massive, you know, and because like massive problem, therefore I've got to do something massive and then they'll get overwhelmed and do nothing. That's the upshot. In fact, the most impactful, believable, hashtag authentic way to go about it is to actually start where you are. And that will be often very ordinary and small. And so as an example that I use in the book to sort of illustrate it, there's a friend of mine called Lucy and she's got two little boys that they're, they're rat bags, and they live up the road and she's frustrated. She she feels that she needs to be doing more um, in life in general, but particularly around climate. And during the strikes late 2019, so you remember the schools strike for climate that were global, um, She was, like, frustrated because the parents at the school that her boys were at were not mobilising. So she said, what can I do, Sarah? And I said, well, what idea do you have? She said, well, I was thinking if I just went and hired a minibus, then people might go to it because they're sort of saying it's a bit too hard to get into the city. And I said, that sounds awesome. So she put it up on one of those apps where you can book in, like, an event and pay the money and... You know, secure your spot. So she did that and um it booked out in an hour or something, and then she upgraded it to a coach and then she upgraded it to two coaches. So in forty eight hours she managed to get hundred and fifty extra parents and kids to to the strike. I shared that story on my Instagram and then I would say half a dozen people quickly mobilised and did exactly the same thing. So Lucy's ordinary action, where she started where she was, which was as a frustrated mum with limited resources, um, got probably 500 people, that's a conservative estimation, to a really important strike. And, of course, 500 people then share the message. They're enrolled and they share the message with neighbours and it probably had an impact of several thousand. So that is how change happens. And I actually show the, the, the arithmetic behind it and the science behind how that actually works. So um, start where you are is one thing. At a tangible level, it literally does mean where you see an opportunity, go there. Don't hesitate. Just do it. Be engaged because action begets action. It actually doesn't really matter what you do. If you do something, it will lead somewhere. And at the very least, it will make you feel empowered. And at the very least, it will also make you get involved in some of the theory and the the news and the science and so you feel a lot more empowered as well. Um, I think that there's tangible things, um, I would say, just walk your message as much as possible. So no no plastic bottles, no, um, no takeaway coffee cups, single use. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so do that. And that's really important. It really is. I, and I talk about why it is. A lot of people go, it's not gonna make any difference. Well, it does. It absolutely does for a bunch of nuanced reasons. Um, have a look at your electricity provider and research how you can actually switch. Have a look at your bank and switch. They're the, probably two of the most powerful things a consumer can do. The other most powerful thing. There's a book called Project Drawdown that actually um, assesses a hundred of the actions you can take and tells you which actually reduces the most amount of carbon dioxide, which is what we're wanting to do. That's the most. That's the biggest aim here is to reduce carbon dioxide. So um, and the the one of the top three things you can do is um to reduce your food waste and it sounds ridiculous but if we i think brits and australians are much the same we throw out about 30 to 40 percent of our food now if we halved that firstly it would produce enough food for the entire world there is enough food on this planet to feed the entire world if westerners just halve the amount of food they waste so that's something – I might even just leave it at that. Everyone, mm. you know, you talk about vegan versus meat eating, um, you know, how often you catch a plane. You can talk about all of that. And it's quite hard because, you know, we have limitations and so on. But absolutely, if you can cut food waste, you're doing something really tangible.
0: Okay, that's so, so uh, yeah, powerful. And um, it's so easy as well to switch banks – these days a lot of the banks the ethical banks are just online banks and it's literally it takes about two minutes to download the app and they switch it all over and switch all your direct debit stuff it's like super easy same with switching um changing your electricity they kind of sort it all out so definitely recommend people do those things as well um thank you so much sarah this has been so fascinating to speak to you thank you so much for all the work you're doing in the world you're a big inspiration to me um where can people find out more about you and get your book and uh anything else that you're up
1: to okay um well sarahwillison.com is where everything is kind of hosted and and information on my podcast that's coming up and but also the books are there and in fact i have a big rundown of where you can buy the book on at discount <laughs> so every time a bookstore somewhere in the world offers a discount on my book I up, up, you know upgrade, um, load it so uh, if you go to sarahwilson.com that's all there um, for anyone mm-hmm. who's wanting to really um, cut food waste um, I've got two cookbooks and um, Simplicious Flow was the fir- world's first zero food waste cookbook in a sense that the making of it was also zero food waste and it's like 348 recipes and lots of hacks so you can find out information about that too if you're interested it's available as a digital book worldwide um and you can find all of that on my website and on instagram i'm sort of sarah wilson with two with a what is it called like two little feet either side but if you write sarah wilson uh, in, yeah. it, it'll come up
0: yeah 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 amazing thank you so much
1: my absolute pleasure. Um, good luck reading Nietzsche in a, a rice patty soon, Chloe.
0: <laughs> you have been listening to the Karma You podcast with me, Chloe Brotheridge. Don't forget, you can download loads of freebies for anxiety and confidence at my website, karmayou.com. You can also find out about my app and my one on one sessions